Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. You know who our guest is. Our guest is a legend. You know, Mark Tremonti is an American guitarist, songwriter, vocalist, and occasional producer that is known widely for being a co-founder of legendary bands such as Creed and Alter Bridge. I also think he's one of the nicest people in the industry. I present you Mark Tremonti. Here it goes. Mark Tremonti, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you? Dude, it's a pleasure. Very good. How are you doing? Good. Great. Good. I just want to get right into it. One thing that I've always thought was interesting about you, like I think before the metal community started to realize the dude from Creed is actually a metalhead who can play guitar. I kind of just like was paying attention. I was like, I think this dude is legit. And over the years, I just started to notice that you're always doing projects. You're always working. Like I went to your house that time and saw your amp collection was like blown away by the amount of stuff that you have, but not just have like actually use and kind of become known as a, super prolific guitar player who's goes way, way beyond commercial rock and developed a lot of respect in the metal community. Was that intentional or is it just you're a prolific dude and you just make music and that's what it is? Just surviving, doing what I love, you know, just trying to stay as busy as possible, just like so stay doing what I love doing. You know, it's, as soon as you sit on your hands and don't work on anything, people forget about you. There's too many there's too many guitar players and songwriters out there that, that want to be doing this to just take it easy and take your time. So I, I like to work hard to stay out there doing it. It's almost as if the external level of success doesn't affect your internal drive for it. If anything, that the early days spoiled us, and now it makes me see how hard it is to get you know, a number one song or a number one album or anything like that. I'll always be kind of pissed that it's so hard now when it's, when it was <laughs> in the beginning, it was so, it was much easier back then. What do you think was easier about it? Just out of curiosity. You know, when you're in a band that has as much radio support as we did back in the day, you could put out uh, any song and it's going to get all the support. It's going to almost go number one, no matter, no matter what. Once you have bands that have five number one songs, when it's, when a new no song comes out, all the radio programmers are going to push it no matter what. And I'm, you know, I'm proud of all those songs. I know, I know why at the time they, they did well, but now I feel like if I spent 10 years straight writing the best song I've ever written, it's not going to have that, that push that we would have gotten back in the day. It's just a different time. Rock is definitely in a different place than it was when we were back in the late nineties, early two thousands. It's uh, we've become a niche market and uh, it's, it's just harder to meet, hit the masses with, with a rock song these days. It's interesting to hear your perspective because obviously you've seen it from the lens of what happens when a rock band does cross over into the mainstream and get that success. But what I'm wondering is, do you feel at all like there's maybe a different type of appreciation now? Like, it, yeah, you're right. It's a niche market, but you feel like there's maybe a deeper sort of appreciation for music now or more dedicated fans of like stuff that is off the beaten path or am i just imagining that no i think when you get a fan nowadays you have them for life you should have them for life if you're doing your job but if uh back in the day everybody was buying records everybody was going to rock concerts nowadays if you find a rock fan they're really into it they've had to do their research my kids who are in high school 
my older son who's in high school, all their none of their friends listen to rock and roll. None of either one of my kids' friends, except for one. Out of all the kids they know, one of them played guitar, one of them liked rock and roll. So he's the spoiled kid who I gave a bunch of stuff I wasn't using to. So he's got a bedroom <laughs> full of amps and guitars and pedals because he's the one kid who gives a damn about rock and, and roll. And he lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> Back when I was a kid, all my friends listened to metal. All everyone, you know, all all my I surrounded myself with metal fans. And uh nowadays you go to a my kid's high school, there's not gonna be one kid who knows who Exodus is. Not one. Take a modern band. You take a, a popular modern metal band like Mashuga. You go through my kids' high school and ask any kid there if they know who Mashuga is. I'd be hard pressed to find one kid. You know, I think you got to go over to Europe. Maybe that's just you know they go to a small school. Maybe it's that, but I just don't see the same sort of passion for uh, you know buying records and putting posters on your walls like we did when we were kids. So when you find that person who does that, they're diehards. You know, I think that. At least, you know, from my perspective of having the online schools and the podcasts of have like a very direct look at young people who are making heavy music and have for, you know, a few years now. And while I think that you're right on local levels, I think you're absolutely right. I think that where it's moved, though, is that these people, rather than having a bunch of friends at school who are into it have found a bunch of friends all over the world. And so they have these online communities where it replaces what that would have been for us in the nineties. They have to find it online and they do. And it's probably just as many people, but they're, they're just way more spread out. And you think about in the nineties, there was no online way to other than like weird message boards, but like there was no way to like, you know, (laughs) get in touch with a metal community halfway across the world without a lot of downtime, I guess, waiting for a response. So I do think there's a lot of interest, but I think that it's, it's shifted even in the two thousands. Cause I have a brother that's 10 years younger than me. So I vicariously well, not vicariously. I was glad to be out of high school, but like I paid attention by the two thousands stuff was changing big time. Yeah. I mean, it was not, it was not hard to find a hundred metal heads at my school. Everybody listened to rock or metal or heavy metal or glam metal, but everybody listened to rock. There wasn't a lot of people listening to the stuff you saw on MTV where I went to school. You know, I remember moving from Detroit to Florida and all my friends went from listening to heavy metal and rock to, uh, kids would pull up to school listening to CC music factory. (laughs) I, (laughs) It blew my mind. I'm like, are you seriously? You're rolling down your windows and jamming CC Music Factory out out of the out of your car stereo. <laughs> <laughs> it was a completely different world than I was in back in Detroit. Well, one thing I think that is very different now is that even genres that aren't exactly quote unquote metal were still under the heavy music umbrella, like uh, alternative and grunge. Maybe they were, you know a notch down on the heaviness factor, but still like, I mean, Alice and Chains were pretty damn heavy at times. And, uh, there were multiple genres of heavy music in the mainstream taking over a good amount of real estate in stores. And I think that if, uh, if whatever the mainstream outlets are now were that dominated by heavy music, it would be more like it was, but it's, it's more underground 
again. Which makes people have that ownership in it. They have their clubs, they have their groups. It's it's more of like, this is our thing instead of everybody's thing kind of thing. I do remember it being that way, like for instance, about death metal for back in the day, even when rock and metal were a lot bigger, there were still genres that were not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, like nobody at my school besides me and like two weirdos were into Cannibal Corpse. Yeah. Well, I mean, where, where I went to school, Slayer was a pretty common band. You know, it was not uncommon at the time when Rain and Blood came out, everybody had it. Wow. Yeah, it was just, but then, like I said, it was so different from Florida, from Detroit. Detroit was a bigger, rock was much bigger there than it was in Florida at the time. I know Tampa was the bed of, of death metal, right? I think. Yeah, epicenter. Yeah, but Detroit was was great. Everybody loved just rock, heavy, the heavier, the better for a lot of people. Do you, by any chance, feel like metal and rock being around you that big everywhere made it more realistic in your mind to pursue that direction? Like, wow, this is actually a viable choice. It's all I ever wanted to do. So I just, uh, I thought it was going to be way different than it actually is. You know, I thought it was, I had dreams of signing the record deal the next day, you know, heading off on tour and having this incredible life you see on TV. But um, it was much different than that. You know, you sign your record deal and then I was still working at a guitar shop. We signed the deal and we were still broke for years, you know, trying to sleeping in vans and, uh, taking turns driving the vans and, and playing at nasty clubs. And, but I'm glad I went through all that. That was a, some of the best times of my life. You know, it was, uh, I think every musician should, should go through that. I, you know, I, I think it's kind of, you know, if you have these pop stars that go from zero to hero, they don't get to experience that. And that's some of the most fun stuff going through the, you know, plummeted out for a while. Builds character. Oh yeah. Do you think that if you were 15 now that you would want to do this? If I was the same kid, I was yes. But I think it's a much, much, much tougher world to, to be in right now. The, the professional rock world. If my kid was 15 and he was as diehard as I was, at 15, I would try and steer him in the right direction and not take away his drive. Which is, which is put the guitar down. <laughs> but I would say, you know, this is not an easy path as a rock band, you know, for as a career where you're putting a roof over your head and your family's head, it's very tough these days. So you can't, you know, you look at any band that's out there doing it professionally on a rock level right now, you got to give them respect because the difference between now and then was we sold records. Now people don't sell records. That was 60% of our income that just got taken away from everybody. And then COVID happens and you can't tour and you can't sell merchandise. So a lot of these bands that, that might've had some momentum have died. They disappeared. They had no way to survive. So now anybody who's out there doing it nowadays, especially here in America, you know, hitting the, hitting rock tours and surviving, that's the very few, few people that, that are able to do that. It's tough, man. I think people on the outside, on the outside think, you know, being doing the rock thing is just easy. You know, it's just these guys just haven't made kind of a thing. It's a tough world. Even through even the government, the way they look at that rock. When we're going through COVID and everybody's getting all these all these businesses are getting all this this money for, you know, restaurants and this and that. Few friends along with me partnered up on opening up a breakfast restaurant. And um during COVID, we got all kinds of help, which was great. But I'm also in a rock band. And got absolutely no help whatsoever. So you just kind of see like, they'll be fine. It's a rock band. Who cares about that? You know, but all oh, restaurant, I'll do whatever I can for the restaurant. But 
Yeah. We all have a career just like everybody else. And we're not just a rock band. We have managers, we have agents, we have crew, we have tons of people that have made this their their living. So yeah, it's not just an easy road. Even like, can you think in the last five or 10 years of a rock song that you'll be able to hear 20 years from now? It's just hard to know because it's hard to predict what's going to stand the test of time. But I can't think of any rock songs that were in the public consciousness the way that they used to be. And so the thing about it being a lot harder is I think that it's a lot harder to hit it big. That's for sure. But what I do think is easier is I think it's easier to get to like a, making a, just a standard like living and having a career from being a niche artist. I think that that's a lot more accessible than it used to be. Uh, you don't have to go through gatekeepers the way you used to have to. You don't need a record deal anymore, right? You can just, anybody can get out there and tour. Record labels used to be the only way you could really have a career now. And you can do it on your own these days. You know, it's great to have the record deals. If you're clever enough to make your own merchandise and get in your van and go on tour and win people over city by city, a lot of bands nowadays will do buy-ons, you know, they'll, they'll buy on tours and get success that way. That wasn't something I ever knew existed back in the day. Musicians need to have different expectations than 20 years ago. If they're wanting to get in there and play arenas, and that's like the goal, that's cool and all. But if it was unrealistic 20 years ago, it's like close to impossible now. It was still unrealistic 20 years ago. I mean, most bands failed. But just out of curiosity, all this said, it is harder. But you're still out there nonstop there is no let up with your output. And I know you said that you need to keep working and there's the relevance, like you lose your relevance if you go away. But what I'm curious about is how does that translate day to day to you as a musician and a songwriter? Like when it comes to just the day to day, and I don't mean on tour, I just mean like your home. How does it translate to what you do on a daily basis? You know, I, I juggle a lot of different projects I just came out with a record last week, but I'm already stressed about writing the next Alter Bridge record because I'm going into the studio in April. So it's uh, I already feel like I'm way behind the schedule because I got so much work to do. So it's just working harder than ever. Just trying, especially with what just happened with us all kind of being off for a year. Everybody's coming back out. I've got to release records for the Tremonti band and with Alter Bridge next year. So I've uh, just right now I got to work twice as hard as I've, I have in the past. And I, I, I've got a six month old daughter that I, that I just had. Thank you very much. So it's, um, I'll wake up first thing in the morning. If she's still sleeping, I'll, I'll try to get as much as I can get done until she wakes up. And when she's up, I'm with her until she falls back to sleep. And I just go grab a guitar and do whatever I can. And, uh, it's just trying to, trying to stay, trying to stay productive and juggle all these things. And, you know, with all this other stuff, stuff said too i don't want to sound negative about it how difficult it is rock and roll is not dead by any means rock and roll is still thriving with the people that love it like like we mm -hmm. said there's just people that are more passionate they're just not as many of us as there used to be because it's just not you don't turn on the tv when you're 13 years old and see a big rock band on on your you know it's not in the public eye as much anymore. I think people kind of grow into it because they go down all these rabbit holes and find these cool artists. Um, it just gets harder and harder to find because we have so many outlets. And like you said, the oversaturation is, is huge. It's not like it was. 
But there's still an audience. Yeah, and there's still a lot of people. I mean, instrument sales, for instance, are absolutely through the roof. I think it was last year that Sweetwater posted that they made just about $1 billion in revenue. So there's more people than ever trying to make music. And a good chunk of that is guitar and heavy music. So I think that there's a lot more creators than there ever have been. But like, all right, so when you wake up in the morning and you start working, what is it? Is it songwriting? Are you practicing technique? Like, what are you, what are you working on? Uh, both. You know, it's uh, right now it's songwriting. And usually when I, when I get into songwriting, my guitar playing goes downhill. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I wish I could, you know, I, I get jealous of some of these incredible guitar players, but then some of these incredible guitar players just focus on that guitar playing. And I, you know, I wish I had that time where I could just sit down every single day and just master the guitar. I wish I could live two different lives and do that and also just try to master uh, writing as many songs as I can because it's, I try to do a bit of both. It's impossible just to do one. If I just was a guitar player, I don't think I'd have a career anymore. I wouldn't have songs. I got nothing to play on stage, you know? So it's, to me, songwriting is 80% of whenever I have a guitar in my hand, it's 80% songwriting, 20% technique. So the technique is more there to facilitate you being able to do what you need to do for the songs. Well, the technique came along for the ride, you know, you're, you're on, <laughs> you're on tour and you're sitting in dressing rooms. And you got a guitar in your hand. Hey, why don't I learn how to do this? And why don't I learn how to do that? And to be honest with you, the guitar thing is more, uh, I feel like I got to keep up with it. You know, I love playing guitar, but I love playing. I don't necessarily love shredding all the time. I like, I like to do, be able to do that. And when I write solos for records, I try to push myself. But then once I put those records out, I'm like, damn it, I got to stay on top of this stuff to, to be on tour. How do you see yourself? Like, do you see yourself as a guitarist do you see yourself as a songwriter do you see yourself more as like just the title musician like if you were to define yourself i am a songwriter but the world sees me as a guitar player i think mostly but if you spent a month with me at home and saw what i did professionally i'm i'm on my computer organizing ideas and writing and then hey let me spend an hour playing lead guitar and, you know, I, I go through periods where if I get obsessed with something on, on the guitar, I'll spend eight, eight hours a day for, you know, a month trying to tackle something. But then I'll get back into songwriting and songwriting really takes over everything for me. Writing and not just songwriting uh, on the guitar, but I just vocals, writing vocal lines are my favorite thing to do. Has it always been? Writing vocal melodies is my favorite thing. It's always been since day one. I was a horrible, horrible guitar player when I first started, just like most people. And, um, but I immediately started writing songs with my four track back in junior high school. And that's always been my favorite thing. I, I always got more excited about writing a melody in a song than tackling a guitar technique. One thing that, you know, I hope that musicians first starting out or even musicians who aren't first starting out, who are listening to this pick up is that you get what you focus on if what you focus on is 80% songwriting, 20% technique, you're going to be stronger with the songwriting. And that's going to be the shape your career takes is a, what happens when the focus is songwriting. If your focus is technique, that's the shape that things are going to take as well. And uh, it's important to just be aware, I think, of what you're spending your time on. The reason I say this too is because I know a lot of guitar players 
who are very technique oriented and don't understand why their songwriting isn't better. And it's like, well, how much do you work on your songwriting? It's like barely any, what do you expect? Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of guitar players that grow up just obsessing about technique, um, they might overanalyze things a little too much to get in, to let their imagination flow. You know, I think they try to play by the rules too much. I remember writing with, with miles when we were early in the Alter bridge days and I was, and miles has always been a really great theory driven player. And I was trying to learn as much as I can about the knickknacks of every damn scale and every chord voicing and all this and that. And he's like, if you knew all that stuff, I don't know if it would ruin what you got going on already with your songwriting. Cause that's, if you start learning the rules too much, you're going to start playing by those rules and it's going to shape the way you are as a songwriter. And I always had that in the back of my mind. So whenever I write songs, I deliberately throw the technique away for a bit and let, just let, um, you know, one, one good thing I like to do is take the guitar and tune it to a different tuning that I've ever used before and, and start all over. So there's no scale, there's no chord voicing, there's nothing but your heart and your mind telling you where to go. I also like to take like some random beat, like a, some kind of trance hip hop thing and play it in the background and see if I could vibe along with something different like that. Just shock your system into doing something different all the time. Just like yesterday, I was working on a song. I really liked what I was going for, but I felt like I had to concentrate too much on these chord shapes and not hitting one of the open strings. And I just wanted to be able to sing the melody and write the song. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make it easier on myself. And I'm going to tune the D string up a whole step. And I'm going to tune the B string up a half step. That way, when I'm playing anything and I think the song was in C, everything, all the open strings worked as long as I had this power chord going on the bottom two strings and I focused on that G string somewhere and it made everything easier. I could use all these open strings and I love having moments like that. So now I'll dive into that tuning and try to pull up anything I can in that world because every chord voice is going to sound different than a standard tuned guitar. I love writing songs like that and then have to do having to do a solo with those tunings because you're not just throwing out pentatonic licks. You're having to come up with some weird stuff that theoretically it would be bizarre, but in a good way. If you tried to play some of the solos in these alternate tunings on, in standard tuning, your hand would be flying all over the place and it'd be impossible. So um, I love the opportunity to write a solo when you have not, when you have, when you're looking at the guitar, like you're blind, you have no idea what the hell's going on. It's to me, it's, that's fun. It's a fun challenge. When I do guitar clinics, I teach, not teach, I just let people in on, on how I write songs. I always go into the guitar tuning thing. And most people are afraid of it because everything they've learned up to that point is out the window other than how to pick and how to, you know, your finger strength. That is the beauty of it. But a lot of people are afraid to make that transition. But I think once they do, it just takes that one light bulb moment. What I teach people is Take some kind of right hand pattern, like a finger style pattern, get used to it so you can not even think about it anymore. And then just take your fingers and put them anywhere you want on the guitar. And if you do that for five or 10 minutes, you're going to stumble upon something that's great and unique that you can try to now navigate and turn into a song. To me, it's a hundred times easier to now for me to write in an alternate tuning than it is even standard tuning, because I'm not going to hit my same bar chords and my same campfire open position chords and all that stuff that I've done a million times and everybody else has done a million times because it just won't excite me. I'll be like, that's been done. I'm not going to do it. Speaking of Amel, because brought him up earlier, when we did our guitar album, we were in the middle of doing stuff for the band. And the question was, how do 
me and you create a guitar album that doesn't sound just like the band but with no vocals we just picked a weird tuning a weird ass tuning f low f high f and octaves f f c f a d so super low all on a six string but uh yeah it shocked the system and it allowed us to write in a way that we were totally not used to doing and successful in not having it sound like the band but you have to throw away all your theoretical knowledge when you do that but well on paper not the ear part which is what matters is like you're you don't throw your ear away um, which is the point of theory anyways is getting to understand what things are with your ears right hopefully but so that's <laughs> i would think that's the idea and i think people get it wrong when they use it to write things that's when you start getting in the way of the creativity but i do think that like when you pick the the weird ass tunings it frees up your ear to go towards what you feel is right like actually right yeah it's great it's a secret weapon for songwriters guitar playing songwriters so many people don't take advantage of it it's just the easiest best best way to be excited all over again you know so i think it's the next best thing than the grabbing a different instrument to write on interesting i would way rather pick a different tuning than another instrument but interesting what other do you pick up other instruments right now i have just a keyboard that i don't i can't play piano for for shit but i bought the omnisphere program which is amazing a very cinematic mm -hmm. awesome sounding program and and um i can just play simple things on there and just you know in in one night i'll just scroll through all the presets and i'll, I'll layer some sounds and come up with you know, 40 ideas in one night. And then the next day I'll listen and say, that's junk, that's junk on 10 of them will be great. The challenge with that is how do I turn this awesome soundscape into something I can play on the guitar? You know, that's the challenge, you know, but um, I love it. I, I, I'd love to make an album where I'm not even playing the guitar or I'm just singing melodies to what I've done with, with pads, you know, making chord progressions and layers with, with atmosphere. So when you think of music, like in your head, when you're thinking of your own music or you're just thinking of music, do you reference a fretboard or are you thinking of it detached from any physical instrument? Yeah, it's completely detached. It's just, it's driven by emo emotions and feels and how you can get to those emotions and trying not to get, I, I, I do my best to not get trapped in the same old thing. You know, that's the toughest thing. You know, I've been lucky enough. I think I've put out 14 albums now and earlier on in my career, it's like, oh, shit, I love this chord progression, but I just used it on the last three albums. I can't use it again. So the more and more and more you go in your career, the less you can, you know, uh, the more you have to go deeper and deeper down rabbit holes, not to sound like you're doing the same damn thing. It gets harder, but I think you just get better at coming up with, you know, messing with song arrangements and messing with weird chords that make you turn your ear and I think, you know, I think like an Alter Bridge, me and Miles are kind of on the same page with that. When he just came out with his solo record, if you listen to the title track, that song, as you hear it, will go in a bizarre twist and turn that you won't see coming. I love that kind of stuff. Just going down that rabbit hole and finding every little thing that, that still gets you emotionally stimulated without being too art, too art on the artsy side, just because you're trying to be smart. <laughs> still got to be emotional you know do you believe in inspiration or is it like do you wait for inspiration to write doesn't sound like it or do you just sit down and write and then inspiration finds you i'm the type of person that needs to be happy when i'm working on stuff i need to feel good a lot of people like to be angry and that's when they write angry songs but 
<laughs> I could be in the best mood in the in the world and write my angriest sounding song. When the pandemic was going on for about five months, I was out down and out. I wasn't feeling good about anything. I didn't want to go and sit in my studio by myself and write a song that I didn't know when I was going to record it and when I was going to go tour it. So I got into other things, painted my house, fixed this or fixed that and played guitar, you know, a little bit, but not as much as I should have. And then when I got back into it, I was refreshed and ready to tackle it. But I've never, I don't think I've ever taken that much time of a break from, from writing. It's kind of scary. The writing to me is like, it's like guitar playing. If you take too much time off of guitar playing, Mm -hmm. you're going to suck for a while. You're going to lose a lot of what you had before. Um, A lot of people say, yeah, it takes me a week and I bounce back. But there's a lot of little licks and stuff that you didn't have in your psyche or it didn't have completely cemented in there that are gone forever. With songwriting, it's the same way. So when I got back into writing again, you know, you have a you have a few weeks of scary times like, oh, shit, maybe I don't have it anymore. And then you have that one (laughs) night, that one night it all pours out and then you just got to keep going with it and going with it and don't turn it off. You know, the writing is not something you should ever turn off. It should always be going because when you do shut it off, you never know how long it's going to take to to turn it back on. So in that time period where, like you said, like three weeks of shit up until that one night during the three weeks of shit or however long it is, whether it's a week or three, when that's happening, are you consciously aware that you're in that phase and you just got to keep going? Yeah. You know, that's when I, um, you know, I just shut my laptop pissed off and then I'll throw on a drum loop and I'll just practice the guitar. You know, if I'm here, I'm going to get something done. That's when I go to plan some technique I'm working on, you know? So I, I fall back on the guitar technique when I'm not being inspired by writing something. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The more time you have a guitar in your hand and you're, you have more opportunities to capture lightning in a bottle, you know, you never know what's going to happen. One thing that I always did with technique writing was always my main focus, but uh, when I was not feeling inspired or good or like, you know, it's just all that's coming out of shit. I just practice technique and eventually what I found would happen is if I did it long enough, the light bulb would turn on. I could be practicing a technique and then out of nowhere, the ideas start happening. But if I had not played that day, you know, if I had uh, been like, I feel like shit, not going to do it. Like I'm not writing anything good, not going to do it. Then, you know, nothing cool would have ended up happening basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You never know, man. Just like I said, the more time you, even if you're not feeling it, the more time you have that guitar in your hands or that piano under your fingers or whatnot, the more opportunities that you might stumble upon something that all of a sudden it was all you needed to get inspired. You know, that little mistake. It's all about mistakes. I think writing mistakes and, and, and experimentation and not, not worrying about sucking, you know, cause as, as you're writing, you're going to suck a lot until you come up with something great. That's the tough thing. When I, when I teach people in the clinics, um, about songwriting and how I write, I do it in front of people. So I, I tell everybody we're, we're in the trust tree right now. I'm, I'm really going <laughs> to, I'm really going to try to write something here with you. Now I'm not going to pre-write something. I'm going to show you how it's done organically. And then I'll go about it. Most of the time, I'll come up with something decent. Sometimes I'll come up with something great. Like the um, the last tour I did, I started writing the title track for our new record, "Marching in Time," was written in one of those clinics. So I've got the I've got the audio of me speaking to all these people, going, "Hold on a minute, let me record this. Here's how I'm going to write the melody and whatnot." And that's 
it's cool to have that moment captured, you know, but that being said, there's a lot of times where I'm like, Oh shit, I got a bunch of people sitting in front of me and I'm sucking right now. I got to <laughs> come up with something. <laughs> Are they understanding? Yeah. You know, if I, if I'm not coming up with something cool, I've got so many different ways to approach songwriting that there's going to be something that sticks. And as long as one of them stick, I can say, listen, see, you're not going to win every time, but if you win one out of 20 times as a songwriter, you're doing great. You know, you just got to keep at it. You're not just going to sit down every, every 15 minutes and write a hit, but you could sit down every couple hours and write an idea, see if it works. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can approach songwriting that, that, uh, so you don't stay stumped. You know, I think I just met with a band yesterday. Um, I've got a friend of mine who's got a, has a son who is in, um, school of rock. They have some kind of, uh, elite group in the school of rock for their top students, like some kind of elite level thing. And my buddy's son made it into that group and he started a band and they were asking me my advice about management and stuff. I'm like, listen, I'm no manager, but what I got to tell you is you, if you want to be a professional musician, it's one thing learning other people's songs and being a great cover band, but if you see yourself covering songs 20 years from now as a professional musician, it's going to be tough. You better be a damn good cover band. You'll be playing weddings and nightclubs and stuff. But most of the time, if you want to be a professional musician, you got to write your own stuff. So they're asking me a bunch of questions about it. I said, just come over to my house and I'll show you what I'm, how I write. And, you know, like I said, I take down the walls. I let them see exactly what I do. And they all left real happy. And hopefully I did something to help, you know, ha have them not sit there going, where do I start? Because I think a lot of songwriters, people who want to be songwriters, think it's this magical thing that only certain people in the world can do. I think people just need a little bit of direction and passion to do it. Oftentimes just getting started. And how to get started. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of how to get started, like, could you elaborate on that a little bit more just for say anyone who's listening to this, who wants to get into songwriting and uh, has no idea where to start? Like just what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, I think if you're going to do songwriting 101 easy thing, either if you're a guitar player, learn a power chord, a simple power chord and move it on the E string and A string back and forth randomly. And as you hit a chord, hit a note and you hit a note, sing a note that matches that chord. Then go to a random another chord where you don't know how it's going to sound. And once you hit that chord, try to make your melody flow into that next chord, not knowing where you're going and learn how to make your, your melodies flow evenly. So you, you're not anticipating, I know how the G sounds, so this is what I'm going to sing. You're going to go to, uh, let, let me see what this fret up here, where I don't know what, what's going to happen goes before I sing this note. And you have all these happy mistakes that happen as you're doing it. So that's one little exercise, like a, like a vocal melody exercise where you're not anticipating where you're going. You're just singing a note in your head and you're landing somewhere and having to survive as you're going around these chord progressions. You could go at any speed you want. You could go slow as you want, fast as you want. You can do different time signatures. You can do a three, four feel or a four, four feel or whatever you want. That's one thing you can do. Another thing is just get on YouTube and type in drum loop, 140 beats per minute, 120 <laughs> beats per minute, whatever it is, throw the drums on, put your guitar on and just throw yourself at the guitar, try to write something and have something open where you have something to record yourself with when you find that inspiration. That's one thing so many times is you know, I've lost so many ideas by not having something ready to go. So if I'm sitting down, my garage band is always open. It's ready to go. It's ready to pounce whenever I got something ready to go. So I like to write the drum loops. I like to write with right hand patterns. Um, so I, so you say you, uh, there's all kinds of these repetitive right hand picking patterns you can do. Learn one and then take your guitar, 
in standard tuning and practice it going all over the neck of the guitar and taking theory and throwing it out the window. Then take your guitar and tune it to maybe like an open D5 tuning where everything sounds great. Do the same thing. Go to an open E tuning. Go to an open G tuning. Go to your dadgad. Do, all, do, all, do that same finger style pattern through it and take that same approach to writing your melodies that you did with the power chord thing. Hit, hit some notes and just sing in your head. And it doesn't matter what words you're singing. A lot of times um, when I write lyrics, I just spit words out and you'd be surprised how many times those words stick. And what I'll do is once I, once I find a chord progression and a melody that I like, as soon as that happens, I will record myself for about 15 minutes singing it, not knowing what the, the subject matter is. And um, so then after I did that for 15 minutes, just shooting out whatever words come into my head naturally, you can put your headphones on, almost like blurring your vision. You blur your hearing and you blur your imagination and you listen to what you're saying. And even though you're singing gibberish, you hear words within what you did and you can formulate, oh, that sentence works. That sentence works. This sentence works. Then you have all these things that you did on instinct. And then you can start saying, how can I make these work in the context of the cohesive meaning of this song? And then it's the puzzle of putting them together lyric wise. And this is all stuff that's so hard to just talk to you about. It's something that I had, I'd have, you're doing a great job. I'd have to break out a guitar and I'd have to show you exactly examples of it. When the band, the young band came over last night, I gave them a project. um, I challenged them to go on YouTube and find, there's all these like royalty free loops kind of things floating around in the world where you just have, um, I think I came across one where it was like music to listen to while you're reading or studying or something. And it's just all these random progressions. I'm like, put on your guitar, play one of these loops and try to write something over it. Don't, you know, don't find a loop that has like a do 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 and you're stealing a melody. Find something that just goes through like two or three chord changes and has some kind of weird, different vibe to it that you wouldn't usually write to and see if you can come up with something over that pad. It's just better than sitting there in the dead silence and sometimes if you're not inspired writing something. If you hear some kind of ambient ambience that kind of pushes you somewhere, use it. But like I said, don't don't go and listen to a Rihanna song and write her melody and think it's your song, <laughs> you know? Find find some kind of ambient thing that you can write over. It sounds to me like you've made it impossible for yourself to or not impossible, but very difficult to have writer's block because there's always going to be some way to come up with something. The writer's block I have is when I second guess every move I make. This has to be better than that. And this has to be so unique that this has to be some crazy time signature that if somebody who liked this band listened to it, they would like it. You know, you overthink it. It's like, just write for yourself. That's what I'm most successful is when I write something that makes me feel emotional about it or aggressive about it, or, you know, that's what I like to go after. When I start thinking too much about pleasing people or being too clever, that's when I sit there and scratch my head until I don't come up with anything. Oh, you know, so I just learned that lesson, write for yourself. Don't ever write for anybody else. You have fans, which is great. And you want you you want your fans to be happy, but your fans are happy when you're writing for yourself, because when you write for yourself, it's more pure. And that's how, that's why they get it, you know, because you're feeling something that's pure and natural instead of forced, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, they're fans of you, right? Like they're not fans of music that you made up for them. They're fans of your actual expression. So if you stop doing that, you may not connect with them anymore. 
But then you listen to opinions, you know, you, you see reviews and you see even fans say, you know, I wish um, he would sing with like grit in his voice. Like, Ugh. okay, I'll, I'll try it, you know, but I don't know if it's going to be natural <laughs> for me. I don't know if I can do that. The kick drum was better on your last record. Exactly. You know, in the solo one thing, you know, I wish she'd shred more. I list, you know, I wish this song had a solo in it. I, well, I released the last record I came out with, Dying Machine, and um, the title track was one of my favorite songs I'd ever written on that for this band. And um, I was really excited to put it out. And then it had a really positive response. But then you had, you know, a few dozen people are like, where the hell's the damn guitar solo? There is a guitar solo, but it's not distorted. It's finger picked. Just out of curiosity, man, like at this point, like with the amount of fans that you've garnered over the years, like, you know, from Creed all the way to now, like it's a lot of people. Like, do you still have that thing where the 12 people say something shitty and you can't ignore it? Yes. 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 <laughs> it never goes away. Oh my gosh. You could read it. You could, you could hear a thousand positive things. And then there's that one asshole. That's like, uh, <laughs> that sounds like uh, this song, but worse. <laughs> like, come on, what? <laughs> I can't do anything right. But you know, I, when I talk to miles, he's like, man, you're brave. If you look at any of that stuff, you're brave. He's like, miles completely shuts down. He doesn't look at anything. He puts his that's stuff good. out. Alter bridge records, solo records, puts it out doesn't ever want to hear about anybody's impression or anybody's judgment at all. Yeah. That's a strong guy, strong man. And I, you know, and he gets that confirmation cause he knows he's has this great thriving career and people, you know, Hey miles, you just won singer of the year for the 19th time. He won't search that stuff out ever. I have a brother, an older brother, Mike, that, uh, that does a lot of our social, our social media stuff. I've had to tell him in the past, dude, if you see something negative, do not tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it. He'll be like, hey, man, yeah, this song has been getting a great response and this and that. And so I don't necessarily need to look down and go down the, the rabbit hole on all that stuff because I get it firsthand from my brother. But um, like you said, the, the positive confirmation is good. It lets you know you're doing the right thing and you're, you're going in the right direction and all your hard work is paying off. One thing I don't ever want to be called is lazy. Like I don't care anymore. Like I'm just going through the motions. That would probably be the biggest insult ever. You know, maybe you don't like a record I put out, but I, hopefully that record sounds like it took a lot of work to put together because it's never something that's last minute. Like I'm just going to throw this and put this out. It's never going to be like that. Writing a simple song that has something to it that's strong enough to actually get somebody's attention and not just get their attention, but stay in their head and not just stay in their head, but be something that they like, that's really, really tough to do. We will rock you. You know, look at that. How great is that? And how simple is that? Yeah, that's a very good. So I think it's a good place to end the uh, episode. I want to thank you for taking the time, man. It's been great talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you guys.